<laughs> and welcome everybody to another episode of Thickest Thieves, our art crime podcast. And we are recording right now remotely. Veronica is in New Orleans and I'm in the Nashville studio. Fun. Yeah, I wish I was there. And for <laughs> those of you who are new to this, we are two little defense investigators who are also art nerds. And our careers prior to being investigators were really art-oriented. So now we're continuing to live that life, but through this podcast where we just talk about art. Yeah, well, it's fun to art- talk about art in relation to the criminal world and the investigation world and all of that. It's kind of all combines into one. Yeah, this is our intersection that we provide to you. We're so good at explaining our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we're very considerate. We're just... <laughs> Not everyone who has a podcast does this. Right, yeah. So we're on season two. There's a whole season one where we talked about art heists mostly. Now we're on season two where we're talking, we're kind of branching out and we're talking about other types of art crimes. Something on like art destruction, vandalism, mm-hmm. sort of. I would say, yeah, pretty much for the most part. Mm-hmm. Though I think we might have a little bit of affection in today's episode. Spoiler alert. <laughs> All right, we'll talk about that later. But first, let's talk about art news, life updates, anything like that. I've got some art news that I want to talk about, but... Yeah, my life update is just like, everything's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Tight. (laughs) That's my life update, too. (laughs) Everything's cool, man. Right at the art news. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so one of the things that I found interesting this week, I guess it's... What is today? Today's the 25th, so this... This it's article... Lunar New Year. It's what? <laughs> Lunar New Year. Oh, what does that mean? Um, it's a different... So it's based... You know, the Chinese calendar is different than mm-hmm. other calendars mm-hmm. that we're used to. The main calendar we're used to. Yeah. So their New Year... I might be getting this wrong, but it's the Lunar New Year, that's for sure. And I believe it's the beginning of the Chinese Zodiac calendar, which... So this is the year of the rat and it starts ah, today. Wow, yeah. that feels important. I didn't know today was so important. Now it feels like, I don't know, like I'm celebrating something. It gives me a reason to celebrate. Yeah. Celebrating the year is, of the rat. Yeah, I mean, it's. I came home from a very uh, weird day and um, I'm celebrating by drinking white wine at <laughs> 1.30. Very nice. I was going to yeah. get beer, but I didn't. Maybe now I'll toast to the year of the rat with you. Okay, great. <laughs> Okay, well, I feel totally different now that I know that it's a new year. Let's do you talk feel about like a very different person now? I do. I feel more rat-like. I just feel like <laughs> I want to scurry around and like I have little, you know, like whiskers and I just want to run around on the floor. In- interesting. <laughs> That's very interesting. Okay, so yeah. cool. I'm glad you're uh, channeling your inner rat. I'm going to for the remainder of the day and night. All right, I expect that to be the case then. Yeah. <laughs> So back to art news, little rat. Like, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So one of the most interesting things that I read this week was in Artnet News. The headline is activist artists hack the new museum's Hans Cat. I can't talk. <laughs> Hans hack survey in an effort to expose the museum's hidden capitalist agenda. So. I think this is interesting because his name is Hans Hack to begin with, and his art got hacked. So the headline is just, there's just a lot of like alliteration and the whole kind of article reads like that. So find it wildly appropriate that Hack got hacked. But his name is spelled H-A-A-C-K-E. And we're assuming that it's Hack. That's how I say it. But. I That's what I have a book by him. Mm-hmm. And that's how I pronounce it. So I hope that I'm pronouncing it right. 
But you know what's interesting about this like capitalist hacking situation that just happened? That his work is largely about that. It's like institutional critique, critique of capitalism. So yeah. I'm curious to hear more about this. So the new museum was doing a retrospective or is doing. I think it comes down in a couple of days. By the time this episode is out, I believe that Bummer. it will be down. Yeah, it closes tomorrow on J- January 26th. It's January 25th right now, everybody. So it says uh, at the new museum's retrospective, there was a an artwork that actually I think was conceptualized like in the 70s. But now it's being shown now and it's like an iPad based artwork that records real-time visitor responses. So there's questions about, you know, I think they're mostly related to capitalism. It's taking polls. So it asks questions. As a visitor, you can go to the kiosk, you can answer the questions, and it shows the percentages of, you know, how people have answered. So you get to see, it calculates it in real time. So you get to see what everyone said before. It's like multiple choice questions. Hmm. Oh, and the retrospective is called Hans Hack All Connected. So... In its final weeks, New York hacktivists, as they're called, I suppose, (laughs) that's what this article calls them. Um, Very cute. They hacked in to the programming from outside. They didn't go inside the museum and do anything. They did it all from the outside. And this, the artwork's called New Museum Visitors Poll. And the two artists who hacked into it, one of them is a professor at Parsons. His name is Grayson Earl. And an anonymous partner that just goes by the letter M, which I find very <gasps> mysterious. By the letter M as in mom? Yes. Mm-hmm. Or M as in mysterious? <laughs> exactly. All yes. Right. Okay. So they hacked in and what they did was they changed the responses. So they basically submitted like 500,000 responses to the question to like override the poll results. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. So they hacked the poll and made it a certain question reveal a certain answer. And that question said it has to do with economic wealth distribution. So basically, like, you know, class status, rich people. The question was, let's see, do they have? Okay, here's the question. It's kind of wordy. I don't really want to read it, but I'm going to read it just for the sake of this. A global wealth report of 2013 by Credit Suisse. um, Swiss? Swiss? Swiss. Whatever. Swiss. I can't say anything. (laughs) A major Swiss bank stated (laughs) the lower half of the global population. Swiss bank. (laughs) Well, it's S-U-I-S-S-E, which makes me want to say Swiss. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. It's not S-W-I-S-S. I know that word. Okay, the lower half of the global population collectively owns less than 1% of global wealth, while the richest 10% of adults own 87% of all wealth, and the top 1% account for almost half of all the assets in the world. What is your opinion on this? So that's the that's the question that was asked to visitors of the exhibition. So you go mm. to the iPad and you choose between three answers, and the answers are, the first one is such inequality needs to be corrected. Second answer is accumulation of wealth should not be interfered with. And the third was, I don't know. So you could choose between any of those three. Hmm. So after the hack, they go in, they hack it, and the response of accumulation of wealth should not be interfered with, when it just skyrocketed from like 8%, because not a lot of people actually right. believe that. They hacked it to where it went up all the way up to 85%. So okay. and the reason why they did that. It's kind of like, 
to me, when I was first reading, I was like, meh, like, okay. Like, I was just like, not very impressed of like, why? But the reason why they did it specifically at this museum is because the museum was asked to respond, like the staff was trying to unionize and the museum denied it. And there was also a lot of anti-gentrification protests regarding the museum and in the Bronx and all this stuff. And the museum refused to deal with like the pay gap between the people who are at the very top, like the curators and the owners and the people who are working at the bottom. So essentially, like they refused to level the playing field in terms of like pay in their museum. So part of this hack was in response to that. So their denial of their employees to unionize. Oh. Which I thought was damn. pretty inter- interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that is very interesting. Yeah. So that's cool. Do they, do they get in trouble, the the people, the hacktivists? No. Well, I haven't read anything about them getting in trouble, which is really, really interesting. Maybe they will later. Maybe like the, the museum is working. I mean, their only statement that I've found is they're just saying like, we got to fix. We fixed it. It's back to normal. It's no longer hacked. But I bet that they will press charges. Hmm. I mean, because they unless, know exactly who it is. Right. Unless I always have this feeling that especially a museum like New Museum is going to with like an exhibition that's like this with iPads and polls and the political situation being what it is right now with like hacking and cybersecurity. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if New Museum kind of set this up to be honest. And I know that that's not, maybe not the case, but like I like the people at the top or the staff members. Like, like do you think people, it, I feel like everyone, they had like a meeting, uh, like a, a work meeting about it. And they were like, all right, everybody, <laughs> this, this shit's going to go down. Pretend like you're surprised. I mean, maybe, I mean, he's a professor, know. you know, it's, it seems a little weird for like an artist and professor to hack into a museum, like on their own accord. But the only thing that makes me wonder is because it is so much about how the museum is paying their staff. Like, and that's very much in the media of like, this is why, you know, and so that kind of seems that's not just promoting the exhibition or promoting like the artist's agenda. That's like kind of personal for, you know, for the museum. Yeah. So that's a good point. Yeah. So they released like a manifesto or a statement, the two artists. And they said that they're hoping that the new museum will take a hard look within itself and consider how it dealt with the staff's recent push to unionize. They wrote that the museum had a chance to make a real difference toward correcting economic inequality, which their audience clearly supports. If only they had agreed to meet workers at the bargaining table committed to reducing the income disparity between executive and low level staff. Mm. So I don't know. I just felt that that was a pretty, pretty interesting way to kind of get back at the system but exactly it's like it's a museum it's not like a giant corporation i don't know right but if like this is like a staff thing which it sounds like it is then they're pointing to the hypocrisy of this museum promoting like artists like hans haku would you know are against or would be against this situation and so it's i feel like it they're pointing to that hypocrisy totally Um, yeah yeah it's like how can you show art like this while also doing the exact same same thing that this art is trying to speak out against. Yeah. It's yeah. Just, yeah. Your run-of-the-mill hypocrisy. That's right. It's everywhere. <laughs> everywhere you look, it's there. So, okay, that's cool. I'm trying to figure out a way to, like, take something from that story and connect it to <laughs> what I'm going to be talking about today. Hypocrisy? Is there any way hypocrisy can... Ju- <laughs> I feel like that's a theme that you can just pull threads on all day long. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Okay, so I want to kind of open up what... I want to talk about today by mentioning a book. So have you ever read Leaving Atocha Station by 
Ben Lerner. Oh, yes. I love that book. Yeah. So um, do you remember there's a scene in the book? It's like in the first part of the book where this guy who is in Madrid on a Fulbright and trying to like write about something, but really just procrastinating the entire time he's there. He goes into a museum in Madrid and he comes across a person who is bawling in front of a painting. Mm -hmm. That is one of the scenes that stays with me the most from the entire book because the reaction of the protagonist when he sees this is that he's he realizes he's never had that experience before of like going like being in front of a artwork and then being so pushed emotionally that you just start crying with abandon mm-hmm. in a museum where people are walking around you. Um, I identified with the protagonist realizing he hasn't had that experience before because I haven't really either. And I'm wondering if you ever have had that experience. I have. There were there have been, I feel like, a couple of times where I feel like early on when I first started to actually dig into art history and learn about things, because I really hadn't seen a whole lot of these like very famous major artworks. And when I first went to like, even well, even when I went to Italy, like several years back, like seeing some of these things I've seen in so many books and I just being able to be in person with them, I definitely cried at a few paintings in Italy. And then there was like Renaissance paintings. Yeah. Yeah. There was like a Da Vinci painting. It was just like overwhelming because I just seen it so many times. And mm-hmm. it was just like, this is so weird. It was just a surreal experience. You had seen it so many times in books. Right. Such, yes. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. I had seen but it reproduced so many times. Being in front of it is like, you know, I'm going to maybe piss some people off saying this, but God is kind of like that, right? Like there are people who believe in God and then if they're presented with God in front of them, they would freak the fuck out. Right. Yeah. So it's that moment where something just seems like it's not even real Mm -hmm. because it's never physically been in front of you before. And then you're there and you're like, this is real. I'm looking at it. Yeah. Exactly. And there are some artists that I kind of dug into their biography a lot, especially so when I was at Fisk, there were a lot of African-American artists that I really, really studied a lot about their entire life stories. And because I had I only had access to like a couple of works by them, there have been times like William Henry Johnson is one of them. Like whenever just whenever I see certain works by him, because his life was so hard and like the the stuff that he went through and there, there are a couple of artists that are like this. But they have such a such an interesting life story to me that when I see one of their works in person, just the idea that like this person was they basically died penniless and their name was not like, you know, no one really knew who they were or much about their artwork. And to see it sort of 100 years later in this museum where all these people are looking at it. I don't know. Sometimes that to me is a very emotional experience because it's like it's incredible that this object has lasted all this time and has like risen up from, you know, being really nothing made by somebody who felt like a nobody to being something that is really revered and being respected. Those types of stories. Those those make me emotional. Right. So one thing I'm noticing about both those accounts though of the emotion is that they're both based kind of on the history of the piece and knowing that history what about situations where you're really just presented with an artwork you don't know anything about the person that made it and it is the artwork in itself just whatever it is a sculpture a painting a video a installation 
that brings you to a point where you are so emotionally charged and you, it's it's just about whatever that artwork looks like, the experience of it in that moment. Yeah, I mean, if I'm an, alone in one of those, like, there's one specific Yayoi Kusama infinity room. There's tons of them everywhere, but there's one... Yeah. There's one specific one in the Phoenix Art Museum. And I don't know if it's still... It, it. I've gone to Phoenix several times for work trips. And I go there. And I'm always the only one in this room. How is that even possible? I in have, like New York, you wait in line for like I know. 400 hours I know. to get in one of those. Yeah. yeah. No, you... Every time I've gone into this one, I'm the only person in the room. And it is one of the most magical experiences the last time I went was right after a like breakup of sorts and I sat in this room and I just sat on the floor. <laughs> I like laid down on the oh, floor wow. by myself in this room and it was one of the most like, I don't know, it was, I can only say it was emotional. I wasn't crying or anything, but it, I felt like I was transported somewhere else entirely. So I would say like that's one experience that I can remember. Also, I visited Crystal Bridges Museum Mm-hmm. Um, during the whole like Stieglitz art bonanza. Um, yeah. And it was a really stressful time. And I remember s- standing in front of Maxfield Parish's The Lantern Bearers. It's just this painting that is, it's one of my favorite paintings of all time, specifically because of this moment. And I could not walk away from it. I just stood there. Like I'd never seen it before. I didn't know who he was as an artist. Like didn't, there was zero history for me. I just stood there and it was like glowing. The way that he painted it. I If you look it up online, it does no justice for like how this thing just glows when you're standing in front of it. And it's absolutely beautiful. And that was one of the, I was like, I just can't move. I'm just going to stand here in front of this painting for a very long time, which I did. Yeah. So. Wow. Okay. I've had some pretty, emo- I feel like I've had some pretty emotional reactions. Well, have you ever wanted to kiss an artwork? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying no, but I'm also like, Sarah, walk it back. Like, have you answered the question honestly? <laughs> like, <laughs> have you ever? I think that the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Have you? Mm, I'm trying to think. Okay, I have been. No, no, I've never wanted to actually kiss an artwork, but I have been inside of artworks or in front of artworks that made me want to have sex in front of them. <laughs> Is one of uh, what I must know. I'm not going to guess. I want to know. <laughs> well, you you can't just say that. You that can't. It's one of them. And then you didn't finish. And so now I want to know what you no, were going to uh-uh. guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I can remember a couple of them. One of, this is going to be very weird, but what, <laughs> so it already what? is weird, right? Yeah. So <laughs> when I was in Chicago and I went to the Art Institute, I found myself in the Joseph Cornell room And don't know what the deal is with me, but I felt that way when I was in there. So there's that one. Was Uh, it any specific like piece or was it just all of it together? It was all of it together. And I honestly don't. It was very weird to me that I was suddenly feeling that way. I was like, what is happening? I cannot make I cannot associate like this feeling with something in this room. (laughs) There's nothing about the artworks that felt erotic or or I mean, I guess they did, but I can't explain what it was. I understand uh, completely. I have I have this feeling about one artist that I'll discuss after you finish talking about every single one of yours. <laughs> uh, well, another one was being inside of a James Terrell. Yeah, I think that's, that that's makes, what I was going to say. James, that makes sense. It's the it's actually if this is going to sound weird because you were with me when we saw it, but I, it was not directed <laughs> at you. 
Um, it was that uh, Mattress Factory uh, exhibit of his work. Oh, yeah. Uh, that The vibe on that entire floor of his work is like, wow. Yep. Um, so there's that one. It's not the pieces that we usually think of where you're like going inside these, you know, circular structures where you like look up. It, those are quite different than those. I don't know. Maybe it's because every human in there was reduced to a silhouette and then the lighting because his work is all about lighting essentially was so vibrant that I felt like the contrast and how we were kind of reduced in that moment gave me that feeling. Um, I feel like this is the most revealing I've ever been and I'm doing it on a podcast. Um, And a third, a third one that comes to mind and that kind of caps it because this is the only three I can think of at the moment is this one makes a little bit more sense. Are you familiar with Carolee Schneeman? Mm -mm, No. Okay. So she's a feminist performance artist from the seventies. She did that work. That's like sausage party or whatever it was called it's a very bizarre performance that she did or it's not very bizarre but it was at the time but what that is not what aroused me um (laughs) (laughs) you weren't aroused by a sausage party performance no um (laughs) but she she made these films and i went and saw them on a very large screen in england at the british film institute and there were like i don't know 100 people in this really giant auditorium and they, we, they just played a series of her movies and one of them was just completely silent. And I don't know, that was another one that created that feeling in me. So <laughs> there are my three. I feel like I just went to a confession booth and <laughs> and walking away being like, I don't feel ashamed. <laughs> and like, Own I it. Feel ashamed, it's not <laughs> cool, Veronica. <laughs> Well, I completely relate to the James Terrell one. And for me, it happened when I realized like, oh, wow, like this is this gives me some sort of like strange erotic feeling was in the, it's at the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston. Um, oh, there's a tunnel. I think it's called, it's called like the light inside or something. It's a tunnel that goes through like one of the lower floors of the museum and it is phenomenal just standing it's so weird and disorienting and like everyone just looks sexier when you walk through it i don't know it's just the lighting and the lighting's like slowly changing and it was yeah i had i had that reaction and i think you're right like the silhouette situation that goes on and just the all of the boundaries of sort of what you're looking at and where like the floor ends and the walls begin and it just all kind of blurs and it's there's yeah, something about it. I, the one I experienced at the mattress factory made me wish that we all existed like that all the time and yes. that we would be way nicer to each other <laughs> or too nice to each other. Maybe if like we did exist in that kind of perspective yeah. constantly, who knows, maybe it will happen one day, but <laughs> we can only yeah. hope. And I would like to mention that James Terrell's work in general, though, does not create this feeling. Like I saw his exhibit at the Guggenheim several years ago in New York, and it was not fun. I did not like it. I did not feel connected to his work at all in that exhibit. So Hmm. I just want to put that out there. And I have issues with James Terrell anyway. So it's kind of weird for me to even admit like, oh, this feeling was created at his installation in Pittsburgh, but oh well, that's, I'm just going to be honest. Like, that's what happened. However, I do have some beef with that guy. Yeah. But we, we won't go into that because we got to stay on the affection. Yeah. Why category. are we talking about this? How did we get on this tangent? <laughs> so I, when we started our, the season kind of focusing on more like destruction and vandalism, I was thinking like, wow, there's so much violence in what we're looking at. It's people like stabbing paintings or pissing on them or, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I was like, are there examples of people who've done destruction by way of something that's not super violent, something that's actually nicer than 
you know, violent response, <laughs> uh, but they nicer still than violence. Something nicer than violence. That's the name of our episode. I nicer decided. than violence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I realized like, oh, kissing an artwork would do damage, especially kissing an artwork with like lipstick on. Mm-hmm. So I, I started going down this little rabbit hole of looking into that because I really didn't know of, I didn't know it in my own memory. I had to go like looking into it. And I, I was talking to my friend, Kurt, who is one of our listeners, uh, Kurt, actually in Pittsburgh, about Hi, Kurt. this. And, hey, Kurt. Wait, why did I say <laughs> <Whoa>. like that? <laughs> editing that out. Um, so, no, we're not. <laughs> so uh, we were talking about it, and he was helping me do some research into this. And it's weird that we're on this, like, Pittsburgh track, uh, because one of the more well-known stories of this is a situation with, like, an Andy Warhol piece. So in 1996, Sao Paulo had a biennial, their international biennial, and they had um, like a series of work, Andy Warhol's pieces called The Torsos, um, mm. something he made in 1977. And it's like paintings of male and female nudes in different contortions all the works start at their like mid thigh. So they're naked. There's like a male nude series in that. And a woman started kissing one of the torsos <laughs> um, with a, like a lot of lipstick on. And, Is it, and I'm assuming these are screen prints. Yeah. Well, they're are photographs they? of paintings, actually. Photographs of, oh, okay. Yeah. Photographs and paintings. Like, I don't know. I'm not really familiar with this work besides hearing about it in the story. Okay. But yeah. So she like, <laughs> He was like focusing all her lipstick attention on like a cock mm-hmm. <laughs> of these pieces and she isn't caught in the act. It's like afterwards it's noticed that there's damage that has been done to this piece <laughs> and they have a video of the woman doing it, but they, they never found her. But was she by herself video, or were there like other people around? I mean, there had to be people around cause it's like a biennial, like oh, they yeah, had for sure. They have some people in the museum for this, but all they know from the video is that she, she looked like she was older. I don't really know what that means. What like gray hair. I don't know. And she was like very dressed up in like, okay, she's wearing like a black sheet. <laughs> Is that very dressed up? (laughs) (laughs) Well, apparently she made it look really good Uh and uh, like stylish. So she's not like walking and pretending to be a ghost or something with like a sheet (laughs) over her head. But and she's got like all this jewelry on and the video shows her kissing this painting. So they never found her. But the she left her mark on this painting and they had to remove it. They had to take all the lipstick off. And because the painting came from the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, or the Carnegie. Well, they're both connected to the same museum, essentially. So because it was from there, it had to be communicated from Brazil to them. And they had to be like, look, this thing happened. <laughs> so they communicated it to a um, conservator. Conservator. <laughs> conservator. Uh, conservator. <laughs> named Ellen Baxter. And she had to communicate about this to other people that she worked with. And so the way she did that was she said, um, well, this Brazilian was so overwhelmed by her feelings for Andy that she planted a kiss on one of the male bits. (laughs) That's, I mean, I guess that's uh, as professional as you can get. (laughs) I know. Imagine prepping for that. You're like, how are we? She probably rewrote that email or like rehearsed that phone call, whatever the communication was. She probably had to edit it. She probably changed male bits so many times (laughs) and then she was just like I'm not gonna say penis I'm not gonna say cock (laughs) 
I'm not going to say dick. I'm not going to say any of the names. for. I'm just going to call it male bits. <laughs> that was her, like, great gesture of, like, political correctness. That's what she fell on. I know she probably went through at least 15 other words. Oh, more than that, probably. Yeah, and that was, the, that was the one that, for whatever reason, her mind settled on, like, I can't get in trouble for this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... <laughs> Yeah, she had to be kind of like spokesperson on that or one of them. The good news is the lipstick was removed really easily. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it called a lot of attention to, you know, this like this, the fact that this person did this. Why did they do it? And they'll never know because they never found the person. The theory is they just it was someone who they just thought it would be like a charming thing to do and get away with. The thing is that a year later, <laughs> The Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh is hosting this party for Chanel Number no. Five, mm-hmm. and um, Warhol's a big part of this because he had used like a bottle from the perfume, like in some of his prints. So, and then Wait, I when think was this? Eventually, in 1997, okay, they had like a Chanel Number no. Five party. Gotcha. And because Warhol had like used Chanel Number no. Five in his artwork, he was. It made sense for the party to happen there. It was mm-hmm. like the 75th anniversary for for the perfume. So, of course, it's a party. People get drunk. Yeah, they do. And um, they're also, when they enter the party, they're they're all given little gift bags, you know, as it goes. And in their gift bags, there's, like, lipstick. There's Chanel lipstick in each gift bag, like bright red. Mm. So a person put the lipstick on and kissed one of the pieces, one of the Warhol pieces, but it's not what you, it's not like the torsos. It was a bathtub. It was like a <laughs> painting, very, like all white painting of a bathtub. And then the, the bathtub is outlined in black. So it's a pretty stark piece. And then this person kissed it and like left their lips on the image. Hmm. So where, where on the bathtub? It's like on a weird spot. I mean, I'm just wondering if there's some kind of like placement that has anything to do with anything, but maybe not. Hmm. I'm trying to think where the placement is. Well, I'm not sure where exactly, but I do know that the people, like after it was done, people were like, why, why this one? Mm-hmm. And um, actually the same conservator. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like a robot, like a, a giant robot that um, comes in and like has a million hands and like goes in and fixes the painting and then leaves. Right. Right. That's conservator. Um, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> she was like really perplexed by this, like why why the bathtub? And either she did it or, or someone else that she worked with said that like it makes total sense that someone would kiss a bathtub because it's like a representation of the human body that's naked without the human body even being there. So people are like taking it to that whole level where they're like, oh, that's really deep. It must have been that. Like it is kind of you look at a bathtub and you think of a naked human. I don't know. Or she Who knows just, what it or she was just wasted. <laughs> She didn't, you know, right. it didn't uh, matter. Yeah. <laughs> I like the <laughs> idea that people are really trying to find meaning in this gesture, but also I wonder if she was just, you know, sloshed and was like, mm, tub, and kissed it. Yeah. Who knows? But I would think the latter, you know, but um, <laughs> here's the thing. It took forever to clean this one up. Like, Why? I believe it took them eight hours to clean it off and they had to do it like fiber by fiber and they had to use like a whole super scientific formula with oxygen and blah 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 to like remove it it was like the equivalent of like cleaning a spaceship or something (laughs) they they went crazy like breaking down like atoms and 
Wow. And how it's going to react in like using a vacuum chamber and all of this. Is this somehow stuff. some like promotion for Chanel number no. five <laughs> of like how difficult, like once it's on, it's on. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like they, a, it's a great advertisement for Chanel number no. five right. lipstick. You want your lipstick never come off your lips. <laughs> <laughs> Although lips aren't really like canvases or whatever, but you know. So yeah, so those two situations happen like one year apart from one another. Mm hmm. And, you know, actually, it wasn't Baxter who said the thing about like the bathtub representing the body. It was like another another curator who was talking about why it made total sense that someone would kiss a bathtub because it's representation. It's like a symbolic of a super private moment. And, and I just tell me, you, I'm going to say something. I'm going to yeah. the next time I, I'm at your house, I'm going to kiss your bathtub and just like leave it there and see if you remember this moment. <laughs> Dude, you do not want to kiss my bathtub. <laughs> it is not a cool bathtub at all. Like, I wish I had a cool bathtub here in New Orleans. I feel like if you live in New Orleans, you should have a cool bathtub. But mine is not cool. Mm. It's boring. It looks like a Motel 6 bathtub. <laughs> Well, I've got a clawfoot one. You can come. If maybe I'll just there kiss we, my own damn bathtub. Kiss your bathtub. See if I notice next time I'm hanging out. You, you've got a you've got a good bathtub for this. So then I was like, okay, clearly these are not the only two cases of people kissing artwork, and Andy Warhol cannot be the only person who gets kissed. You Surely know, not. Or his artwork can't be. So I'm thinking, like, what are the other examples? Do you know how hard it is to search this on the internet? <laughs> by the way. Because you're like... Do you just get like examples of art that's yeah, about keep, kissing? Keep, yes. Yeah. All the kiss series, like the all the different people who name their artwork the kiss, you mm-hmm. know, there are numerous famous examples. So y- you have to be like art, vandalism, kiss, you know, it's, you know, Wikipedia does a little section on lipstick. You get into some things. Oh, isn't I, that, isn't that Klimt painting? Isn't that called the kiss? The like super famous one? I think that one's called the kiss. And then there's other, there's the Rodin, uh, the kiss. There's, there's that one. Who was the painter that did it where like two people have like bags of their heads? And oh, Magritte. Yeah. So there's a few examples. Anyway, eventually I was like, screw the internet. Someone wrote a book about this. No one wrote a whole book about this, but as far as I know, but there is a book called The Destruction of Art. And then it has multiple subtitles, but all right, I'll just say what they are. Um, Iconoclasm and vandalism since the French Revolution. And then in parentheses, picturing history. So this is a book that came out actually like in 2007 or something. And it goes through all the different acts of vandalism on artworks. And it provides theories as to like why things were done to artworks. Like why do people do it? There's like a lot of reasons why people would vandalize artworks. But there is a section where the author focuses on a couple of other examples of people who've done this. So he writes about a couple of examples in this book of lipstick that's being used in destruction of artwork. And so the way he puts it, I'm just going to read this one fragment from his book. Lipstick may be used as a kind of pencil, but in one case at least, it was deposited by the very lips of its owner, a 43-year-old woman named Ruth Van Herpen, on a white monochrome canvas by the American painter Joe Bear at the Oxford Museum of Modern Art. The author of the deed, by the way, I'm going to pause right here. There's no way this person wrote this book in 2007. It's written like it was like like 1950-something. So it had to be (laughs) reaction books in 2007. Anyway, back to it. The author of the deed who was put on trial explained that she found the painting cold and wanted to cheer it up. (laughs) Oh, 
Yeah. I mean, that's that's sweet, but all right. Yeah. Um, I looked at examples of this, and it actually is kind of cute what she did. It looks kind of cute, to be honest. Does like, it? I, I kind of like it. Did she make it better? Yeah. Well, it was all just white. Hmm. There's nothing there. and But now there is. There's her lipstick. Then there's an even, like, an example from before that. In 1912, a woman went to the Louvre and found these paintings, like a portrait uh, that was done by the artist Francois Boucher. Um, and she kissed the portrait on the head and the nose um, and the eyes on each eye. So that happens and she's caught or whatever happens in that moment. I don't know what like legal situation they had set up for people who do this kind of thing. I don't think they were used to it. But she said she was trying to give a message that there were other sinners on earth whose faces should become red with shame like hers. What does that mean? I think she was ashamed. Like she must have. It was 1912. And I guess she I don't know what she did. Here's what my imagination says. The night before she had a one night stand. And that was crazy back in 1912 for a woman, maybe. Yeah. And the museum to process how she felt about it and then comes across these paintings that kind of remind her of her erotic experience and then she feels so ashamed that she kisses the painting like i don't know (laughs) but she thinks you know it's a sign not of her like her being proud of her sex drive it's it's a it's about her feeling ashamed yeah Um, so she's just like i've i've done this thing and now i'm just gonna air it out to the world and let everyone know that i kiss men who I'm not married to or something. Yeah, or who knows? <laughs> this is just what I, I've created a story for this yeah. person from yeah. the 12th. Like, I mean, in 1912, who knows? I mean, there's probably so much going on in her world, in her yeah. head. I mean, I want to know. Wait, what was the painting again? That was by Boucher, like B-O-U-C-H-E-R. So old school kind of. It was a portrait. Not, it's a portrait. Mm. And I'm just curious it, what this person looked like in the portrait. But that's a little hard to find. Hmm. The book definitely doesn't say which painting it was. I mean, I know that Boucher, like what I do know about him is that he's from the actual movement that was known as Rococo. Mm-hmm. So it's like one of my least favorite art movements, to be honest. Although the paintings are like stunning. I think the movement is all about like sort of celebrating the way, you know, basically like what the hacktivists regarding this hack exhibition are referring to. I think Boucher and Rococo and all of them, they're kind of celebrating the way people act when they have like unlimited wealth and don't have to work for their money. Like, but I honestly, like maybe there's some critiques built into that movement. I'm sure there are, but I'm not an expert on it. I just associate it with painters being kind of like lapdogs to the rich at the moment. And they're really talented painters, but they're depicting the subject matter the way those people want it to be depicted in a way. Right, Um, yeah. It's just all about like floweriness and ornamentalness and just like excess, excess of everything. And that, I think, yeah, I think like that's equated with richness. Right. I mean, there's really interesting stories built into these paintings. It's just like, I would never want to, if I could just have any artwork in my house, I wouldn't want to have a Boucher painting in my house. Yeah. Like it's just not my jam. So that's an example, another example. And then I'm going to throw one more at you. And I mean, there's others too, but it's kind of hard to research this. But um, of course, Cy Twombly dealt with this. In 2007, there was a piece up in a museum in France. And the perpetrator, her name was Rindy Sam. And she also, she kissed a white painting. It's a white painting again. Um, or mostly white. Like that's white. the thing that just like tempts people. It's like you it give sure, them a white uh, canvas and they're like, man, got to put some like, color. I must 
kiss it um, <laughs> with my red lipstick. So she got caught and she actually had to deal with like a whole exhausting legal process where I think she, she had to pay a gallery that restored it and fixed the damage, something like 20,000 euros for them to fix it. And I mean, her reason for doing it, she actually was able to be quoted for why she did it. And she's like, I just gave it a kiss. It was an act of love. When I kissed it, I wasn't thinking. I thought the artist would understand. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's shocking kind of a, to me, though. Like, kind of really? Yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> thought the artist would just be like, oh, cool. She kissed my painting. Like, I don't get that. Yeah. Hmm. Those types. You got to watch out for those types. The Rindy Sams of the world. The Rindy Sams of the world who just think yeah. everyone wants to be kissed. Yeah. They can just make their mark on someone else's like work that they spent time thinking about. And then they are like, what? Yeah. What I do. What? I'm curious about like what Cy Twombly's work like um, kind of insights in people. Cause I remember reading about like someone punching a hole in one of, I think or his, one of, I've, there's at least one other time that one of his paintings have got, has gotten vandalized. Yeah. It's, he, this is not the first time. His work pisses people off. Maybe in a way, whatever. maybe in a way that like, as we talked about before, of just like abstract work pisses people off for some reason. I mean, his work, though, does do a little bit of the I like I'm just gonna fucking say it like I, <laughs> I actually like his work, but it it has a particular look of like a kid's drawing. Right. If anything's gonna piss you off about abstract art, like it's in a Cy Twombly painting. Yeah, because it looks like scribbles, scribbles and weird shapes and like someone doesn't know how to color in their coloring book yet. You know, like it's their first try at it. They're like, oh, I just go outside of the lines. I just like do a bunch of yellow over here and a bunch of orange over here and then green all over it. You know, like it's it's got that scratchy, I don't know what I'm doing look to it, which is cool. Like I like how he does it, but I think a lot of people are like, what the fuck when they see his work. Right. <laughs> if yeah. they don't know about him, if they don't know the movement and the context of it, like, I don't know, somehow it just makes people feel very angry. Right. Because it's like, it looks like he scribbled on a painting, did, yeah, yellow here, some green over here, little swirlies here, and give me $50 million for this, please. Right. Yeah. And so if you don't understand like the general overarching like idea of artwork and movements and the things that are happening and like all the whole structure, you could say like, how the hell is this person getting so much money for this, like something a kid could do, which is always the thing around abstract art that is right. frustrating to like teach people or inform people on why it ain't that easy. Yeah, exactly. Um, so those are my examples that I want to present. Like Ooh. I don't I think there are others. I like those. But you know, these are the ones that I found and that stood out to me. And I mean, mm-hmm. maybe I'm missing some really like amazing other examples of this. I probably am, but You know I don't what know. you know what this has made me think of? And I don't know if are we gonna talk about the Minneapolis sculpture later? Oh, let's talk about it now. <laughs> okay, so all of oh this. Oh my God, you're right. Yeah, so all of this reminds me of the. It's like a cherry and a spoon that's in it's, Minneapolis. I think it's called like Spoon Cherry or Cherry Spoon by um, Klaus Oldenburg. Right. So, Veronica, you're the Minneapolis former resident. What happens on Klaus Oldenburg's cherry spoon? So. Just to give everyone a sense of, he does these like giant sculptures of banal everyday objects. He like started doing this in the 70s and maybe, no, in the 60s actually. And no, in the 70s with this particular stuff. Anyway, so this one is just like a gigantic spoon, like the size of a building with like a cherry at the end of it. 
I strongly uh, encourage if you haven't seen this, Google it right now because then it'll make all of this make much more sense. Because I feel like if you can't, don't have a visual of what we're talking about when we say spoon, like yeah, you need to see it. Okay, right. Moving yeah, on. Yeah, it's a very it's a very curvy spoon. Uh, very with sexy like a high spoon. arch. Yeah, and so it's it's a very large sculpture, and it's like a it's Minneapolis has so much pride over this. Like they feature this on so many brochures or whatever. They're at like their whole PR world of like come to Minneapolis. It's always this artwork is included in that process. So the thing that I learned when I moved to Minneapolis, a city that I actually love a lot, is that. It's kind of like a rite of passage when you move to Minneapolis to have sex in that spoon. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, it's not allowed, but it is a thing. But if you can do it, it. yeah, it's like the Mile High Club or something. You know, it's just like a it's just a thing, a little patch to have that you did it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like a bucket list item. And, um, (laughs) you know, it's high risk. High risk. And, and isn't it in like water? Is there water around it? I feel like there's some a of the, pond, there's but they moved. So when I moved to Minneapolis in 2014, they had the, the sculpture garden, but in like when I left in 2017, the sculpture garden had been um, like reconstructed and made fancier. So I think prior to this reconstruction project, it was easier to do this. I think now it's harder to like tick this box that you've done this thing. And this um, is at the Walker, right? Or is, is this? Yeah, more it's, of- it's a part of the Walker Art okay. Museum. It's right next to it. Like, but yeah, it's connected to it. It's it's very cool. Like, it's a cool sculpture garden. There's been like really controversial pieces that were included in this like reconstruction process. And we're not going to go into that right now. But yeah, the spoon stays. Spoon's not going anywhere. And people are getting it on in the spoon. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love it because like when you look at the sculpture, it's I think it's a very sensual sculpture. I get it. I totally get it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, I, also, I, there's like it's such a small that. window of time where I would ever want to be like naked in Minneapolis. I guess you don't have to be completely naked to do that. But it's so cold there. So tiny window, well, people. Except that, you know, summer, it's not. I know. But it's such a I don't know. Fine. Whatever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Go in somewhere if you plan if you're planning on joining this cherry spoon club <laughs> going summer i don't know i think you're more hardcore if you do it in the dead of winter oh, but it's like shit. negative 20 out <laughs> you're right and i'm impressed <laughs> otherwise no <laughs> so easy in the summertime True. don't even bother <laughs> all right we just up the stakes yeah <laughs> So that concludes my episode on affectionate destruction, destruction by way of kissing the artwork. I don't think any of those examples really speak to someone feeling like they are in love with the artwork necessarily. Uh, I think they were just, they had an impulse to do something interesting. However, what I do like about this episode, well, it's not that I don't like it, but one thing that's different than from our other art crimes is that uh, a lot of the art crimes we explore are about men who do things to art. Like sometimes a woman's involved usually as like a sidekick because they're in the couple or, or maybe they're like the main person, but men do dominate this population of art criminals. And I think a lot of these are all done by, I mean, these are pretty much all done by women. So that's how we get our aggression across. We just kiss kiss stuff. Get me that lipstick. (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, thank you, Veronica. That was very interesting. Now I know that shit gets kissed sometimes. Yeah, art gets kissed. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Until next time. Our theme song is by Patrick Dampier. And, and our <laughs> podcast artwork is by Saskia Colgess. 
And we are brought to you by We Own This Town, which Sarah likes to describe as... The greatest podcast network yeah. in all the world. Well, I'm sure Michael would like it if we were like, we own this town, which is his, his actual podcast within right. the network, True. is the best podcast in all the land. <laughs> yeah. I'll give it that. Yeah, sure. He can great. have that. Yeah, it's a great podcast. Everyone go yeah. listen to Michael's podcast called We Own This Town. Yeah, it's the best, right. best one in the land. <laughs> also, go listen to the other podcasts that we have on the network because they're also fantastic yep there's a lot of good I would I would kiss all of them with bright red lipstick if I could aww precious (laughs) alright alright see you later bye bye